Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and my guest today is Kevin Marr from Cranmore Advisors. He joins us today from the greater Albany area in upstate New York. Kevin, great to see you. Great to have you on the show. Welcome. How are you doing? I am fantastic. Thanks, Jimmy. It's a real pleasure to be on. I've uh, been a longtime listener of the podcast, so enjoy this. Well, it's great to get you on the show today, Kevin. Uh, We're going to be talking about farming and agroforestry today on today's podcast and how uh, that topic intersects with Opportunity Zones. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Cranmore Advisors and what are you guys doing with regard to agroforestry where you are currently in upstate New York? Sure. Thank you. We are uh, establishing uh, perennial crop farms using agroforestry practices, sort of well-defined USDA practices um, in upstate New York. Uh, Our core crops uh, are chestnuts and hazelnuts, and we're building off the model of our partner and co-founder, Mark Shepard, who has sort of uh, pioneered this large-scale um, temperate agroforestry in on his farm in Wisconsin. And here in New York, the uh, the plant species uh, that we're working with, chestnuts and hazelnuts, have existed here for thousands of years. Um, and we are using these practices to establish them in this region uh, and capture the long-term potential of, of these crops. Uh, both for nutrient density, biodiversity purposes, uh, other ecosystem services, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a real fantastic uh, ride over the last few years. And as we got uh, planning for our investment farm to partner investors with Mark and uh, his network of experts to implement these systems, I came across the Opportunity Zone legislation and uh, was very excited for the potential in how the, those two things could overlap. Good. Well, that'll be the uh, the the bulk of our conversation today. We'll focus on that very topic, how over- Opportunity Zones overlaps with what you're doing. And I also want to talk about uh, some of the environmental impacts that your type of farming has. Uh, can you tell me about Mark, first of all, though? I know he's a, he's an expert in the field. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about Mark and, and your team. Sure. Yeah. So Mark, um, he started his new forest farm in Wisconsin in the mid nineties and essentially took over an overgrazed, uh, pasture slash, uh, long-term, uh, corn, uh, crop farm and turned it into a savanna ecosystem, uh, using these perennial crops. Um, and, you know, one of the benefits of agroforestry techniques is it gives a lot of different options. So uh, obviously we have the trees and shrubs, which are the perennial crops, but within the spacings in between, we have the options to do uh, annual crops, um, things like uh, a perennial crop like asparagus, we can do grazing, whether it be ruminants or poultry. So there's all sorts of additional options that we can stack. So we're actually getting multiple yields off the same uh, acre. Good. Now, well, let's talk about opportunity zones now. Uh, 
opportunity zones are a policy that really can be used as a tool to help raise equity uh, for certain types of projects in certain locations, obviously. But what do you like about opportunity zones and how does that policy overlap with the type of farming that you're doing? Well, it, it was, uh, as I said, it was very exciting to me when I first found it because uh, these perennial crops, um, you know, have been used uh, in, in different areas and, you know, the long-term economic potential of them is uh, understood. I mean, you know, people are investing in almonds and other perennial crops in different areas, but one of the hurdles is the, you know, the delay between the establishment of the crops and when they begin to yield. Um, so the fact that our investors could get the benefit of this uh, opportunity zone legislation if they're using capital gains and give them that extra benefit and incentive to adopt a longer term time horizon lines up perfectly with the need to have that patience as these crops come into bearing. And so it was uh, just really exciting to be able to structure things in a way that um, gives more of a benefit to our investors. Yeah, the types of crops that you're developing, hazelnuts and chestnuts primarily, what's the timeline there? What's the time frame for uh, for somebody who may not be familiar, uh, yeah. like myself? <laughs> How long until the plants go on the ground until they start uh, bearing? Well, you know, I mean, we, we've had chestnuts that have actually started bearing in year two or so, but in general, we anticipate them starting to come in around year five and, and really kicking in year seven or eight. And then it's actually quite a a continued growth curve all the way out to like 25 years. They could potentially increase every year. Um, hazelnuts, uh, year three, we should be getting something. But um, for our models, we assume commercial harvest in like year five. So, you know, there, there is that delay. Um, in the meantime, we will be uh, pursuing other things. Like I said, we have the op opportunity to do grazing and other things to enhance early stage cash flow. But, um, you know, for our, our economic models, we try to be conservative and just base it off of the revenue from chestnuts and hazelnuts. Good. So uh, I guess to put it in real estate terms, it takes a little while takes a little while longer to get the asset fully stabilized and leased up <laughs> with, exactly. uh, with perennial crops than it would for a traditional uh, maybe multifamily real estate building inside of an opportunity zone. But uh, I guess that kind of plays into that longer time horizon that you were suggesting. Uh, needing a 10-year hold, not really a big problem for somebody who's investing in perennial grow crops. Those types of, uh, those types of crops do need uh, a long-term hold before they, before they start bearing and, and churning out cash flow. Yes. So what about uh, job creation? Part of the uh, intent behind the Opportunity Zones tax policy is to essentially lift people out of poverty in these impoverished census tracts that have been identified as qualified Opportunity Zones all over the country. And part of that goes back to creating jobs for these people and, and you know increasing the economy locally in these different communities. Uh, these are rural communities out in upstate New York that we're talking about today. What types of jobs is this type of farming creating and how many? Well, so there, there's sort of two tiers on, on that. So on farm, you know, we will be bringing in farmers 
and, and people to work on farms. So a few jobs, uh, some work may be seasonal, uh, but we will be establishing uh, you know, farm managers on each of that farm. And um, part of what we're, we're focused on a particular opportunity zone. So we're working uh, across farm projects in a, in a tight area. So um, we'll have people kind of working back and forth on, on our properties. So, and another part of it is we are also able to offer uh, land access to other farms or farmers who are aspiring to get onto land and might want to work within our alleys and, and have a comp complementary enterprise. So we're bringing in new people and new farmers, training them alongside Mark and sort of our uh, in-house network of experts, uh, providing land access potentially for uh, people who are looking to get into farming and establish their enterprises. Um, the other thing we are doing is moving ahead in terms of establishing processing uh, for some of these crops. So that will be an additional layer of job creation um, that we're, you know, working on now to establish. And the second part of what I think is really exciting is, you know, we are bringing in new crops for our region that have a great long-term potential. And a lot of the region has been very dairy centric, um, which has had its real ups and downs over, over the years. And one of the benefits of us coming in and establishing these systems is this can make it another option for farmers and landowners in the area to diversify their holdings and expand that sort of economic uh, production. So by being sort of the first in, in establishing the necessary rails to um, both demonstrate how to do it, but the rails to process and bring to market, it actually becomes uh, a greater option uh, for other farmers in the, in the area and with crops that have long-term economic potential and uh, diversifies away or offers an opportunity to diversify away from some other things that have been a little more struggling. Hmm. And oh, where, where are you in the process right now of getting these uh, farms planted and equity raised for them to proceed with operations? What, what are the status of your farming operations right now and how much additional equity are you raising currently? Well, we have... Um, our first investment farm uh, we closed last year, and you know, so that's fully funded. Um, we now are uh, just secured another property uh, right down the road. We're raising an additional one and a half million dollars for that property, um, and we have the potential to raise up to another five, a total of five million dollars to add a second. So that would be for three properties, all within this this tight area. And that tight area, are, are all the farms located in opportunity zones? Are these all qualified opportunity zone businesses? Yes. Yes, that, that and, is. And how do you take investors' money in? Do they need to have their own QOFs fund set up? Or do you have your own fund? Do you have one fund for each farm? Do you have one overall fund that, that diversifies, uh, that's a multi-asset fund that diversifies across all the different locations? Or, or walk, walk us through how you structured it. Sure. So... Uh... With our first farm, we established our own qualified opportunity fund uh, for the investors to put their capital gains into. And so we managed that. With the, the second project um, and, and going forward, we have the option to either establish a qualified opportunity fund 
um, for investors to invest into, but we can also uh, accept uh, third-party QOFs to invest into the farm QOZBs. So we have some flexibility uh, on that front. And, and not yeah. all of our investors are actually investing capital gains, uh, but the, the majority are. Good. Yeah, so the majority of the money flowing in um, is OZ eligible equity, I guess, but but you, you have a few non-capital gains dollars coming in as well, which is which is fine. Um, let's zoom out a little bit. I want you to put on your uh, your investor's hat or your wealth advisor's hat. Um, and, would, and for the record, this isn't um, meant to be investment advice per se. I have to give that uh, dis- Appreciate it. Yes. disclaimer <laughs> off the bat. But but let's let's talk about some of the benefits of perennial crops in an investor's portfolio. How should investors think about perennial crops in terms of uh, an asset class, essentially, and 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 how how do they fit into a portfolio? Yeah, I, I think you know uh, you would uh, consider them a real asset. You know, sort of um, just far, you know farmland or timber or other things. Um, you know, they kind of fall into that category. They are real assets that once they're established, they're going to be putting out an annual yield uh, in terms of crops, and you know we would hope and expect that there is some measure of inflation protection uh, because of, you know, whatever the sort of pricing of that year is, um, we should be able to capture in in the selling of our crops. Um, And of course, it's diversified somewhat from financial markets um, being uh, a real asset as as opposed to tightly uh, coupled with you know, bonds or equities. And so it's, it's a diversification. And um, we uh, think that there's a lot of potential. And, you know, it's for, for people who are looking to diversify, this is, I think, an exciting uh, way to look at it. And one benefit, for example, as opposed to timber is those annual yields when we get established, as I mentioned. Right. So what does a yield typically look like for, uh, you know, I don't know if I necessarily need to uh, ask you what your pro forma is projecting, although you can get into that if you want to, but what, what's what's a typical range in terms of an annual yield for a, a perennial crop farm like this one? Yeah, so we're targeting a 9 to 12% uh, IRR, um, and we uh, anticipate returning all of the investment by year 10 or so years eight to 10. And then uh, what about in terms of an exit strategy? Do you, do you have an exit strategy in place? Uh, any, any, any sense of what you might do beyond year 10, or maybe, maybe you're planning on holding for, for several decades. Well, uh, overall the project intends on, on holding, but we would be uh, facilitating uh those exits uh, sort of in-house, like we once those crops are up and established using cash flows, if people want to exit to facilitate that. Okay. So if if if, if I were to invest and I wanted to exit 10 or 11 years from now, you could essentially just buy me out? Yeah. We use the cash flow from the farms uh, itself. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things about these crops is, you know, they're around year 10, things really start to hum and the production actually continues to go up 
um, from there. So it's, uh, you know, but everyone's time horizons are different and their needs are different. So um, we would be looking to uh, facilitate the exit from, from the, and, and, and buy people out of, if that's what they choose, or they could stay along for the ride. Sure. So who have your investors been uh, typically, I'm not asking for names, but I guess more of a, a profile of your investors are, are, are they, are they farmers local in the area? Are they high net worth investors who are just starting to get some exposure to farming? Are they, I mean, they must have uh, some patient capital. If they know that they're going to have to be in this for at least 10 years, I would imagine, but how would you characterize your investors so far? Yeah. High net worth investors. I mean, we're limited to accredited investors and um, one of the things, you know, so obviously they, they're looking for a good financial return. Um, they're looking for the, most of them are looking for the capital gains uh, benefit provided by the Opportunity Zone legislation. Um, but our investors to date have also been very excited about sort of the co-benefits of these types of uh, farms and practices uh, in terms of ecological services, in terms of carbon sequestration, in terms of uh, biodiversity enhancements, water, and like nutrient-dense food. So there's this range of co-benefits um, that come with these practices that are also uh, things that our investors want to see implemented. Yeah, I want to hear more about that because we, we talked about um, the, 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 the tax policy intended social benefits, the job creation. We talked about the economic benefits and, and the benefits to the investor in terms of having a diversification a div or a diversified, non-correlated uh, real asset that may also have some inflation resistance component to it as well. Let's talk about those environmental benefits now. Uh, why is the type of agroforestry that you guys have developed and, and are implementing important to the environment. Can you tell us a little bit more about those uh, those those metrics that that you're that you're looking at in terms of biodiversity and water quality and uh, carbon sequestration and why that's important to you and your investors? Sure. Well, um, you know, so this week actually uh, the COP27 is is continuing in Egypt and um, more and more over the last few years there's been an awareness that um, you know, reducing the use of fossil fuels is is wonderful and and uh, necessary to some component, uh, according to climate scientists. But nature-based solutions, um, which agroforestry falls within, um, sort of offer a really high potential tool to do that in a way that is well-proven, because essentially we're using natural systems that have proved themselves over millennia, um, and can not only achieve the carbon sequestration and agroforestry in particular and perennial crops, trees and shrubs are, you know, real workhorses in that regard. And there's a lot of research on that. Um, but especially these diverse agroforestry systems that we're using where there's like trees and shrubs and small trees, uh, with different, uh, heights and diversity within the system and structural diversity. That also offers habitat for a wide range of biodiversity. So, you know, Mark has had uh, rare and endangered species just show up on his farm in Wisconsin, for example. So these actually provide like a refuge. And so the more that we can do, the more biodiversity, plants, insects, birds, uh, mammals, 
um, you know, we're providing more space for that, which actually in the long run reduces our expenses because we leverage some of like the pest control, for example, by encouraging a diversity of insects and a diversity of birds. So we're actually, by managing this way, not only are we increasing the biodiversity and uh, resilience of the system, we're reducing our costs. Um, one of, so I, I forgot to mention, Mark has written two books, Restoration Agriculture and Water for Any Farm. So one of the first things we do is we actually implement a water management system on our farms uh, for long-term uh, water resilience in face of droughts or floods, because uh, we can buffer large rainfall events. And this provides long-term hydration to the plants. But it also helps us store that water, clean it through these natural systems, which is uh, the cheapest way to sort of uh, use uh, for water filtration is natural systems. So we get all of these benefits while producing high nutrient value crops. And it's sort of uh, one of those things where there's uh, a, a number of co-benefits and wins pretty much every way you look at it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we talked about the the social benefit, the OZ tax benefit. We we know very well. Uh, we talked about um, how it's important in an investor's portfolio to have some non-correlated assets. Again, not financial advice. <laughs> we talked about the environmental benefit, but wait, there's more, right, Kevin? Because the environmental benefit can lead to uh, what some call environmental economics or environmental credits that can create an additional financial benefit i'm thinking of carbon credits or ecosystem credits are, are you taking advantage of any of those what can you tell us about those yeah we're, we're actively looking at that and in discussion uh with people around this right now um it's always our been our intention to do this but um carbon credits are sort of the more well-developed although they're still developing but um there's really interesting opportunities now to actually monetize the carbon sequestration of these systems where there are people who um, either want to voluntary, voluntarily reduce their carbon footprints or entities that have committed to net zero goals. And uh, most entities will never be able to fully reduce their impact uh, just in-house through efficiencies or so forth. Um, and they will need to source uh, carbon credits or offsets from another source. So those markets, um, you know, they're, they're players now who will pay $20 a ton upfront uh, for the pro projected sequestration over, say, the first 15 years. Um, and then there's also the option to just uh, sort of document that and sell it in the market at some point in the future so on the carbon side that's becoming better and better defined with more clear options that we're exploring now but there the ecosystem services side there's a lot of interest in the, so biodiversity and water both of those have potential uh, but they're not really fleshed out um, well enough yet but the fact that our project does hit sort of for the cycle in terms of this range of ecosystem services, I think will enhance the value of just the carbon credits um, as we bring them to market. Well, that's great. Well, uh, really interesting what you guys are doing 
at Cranmore Advisors with this agroforestry. Uh, I enjoyed our discussion today and, and learning more about it. If our listeners or viewers are interested in learning more about you and Cranmore Advisors, where can they go to learn more? Yeah, probably the best place is our website, uh, cranmoreadvisors.com, and that's C-R-A-N-N-M-O-R. Uh, it actually is Gaelic for big tree. My uh, hmm. my <laughs> Korean partner had <laughs> come up with that. Uh, but yeah, so cranmoreadvisors.com, and you can reach out on the contact us uh, link, and we're happy to, to talk more about our project. We're real excited about it. Excellent. And uh, of course, for all of my listeners and viewers out there today, I will, of course, have show notes available for this episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I'll have links to all of the resources that Kevin and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to Mark's two books, and I'll also uh, link to Cranmore Advisors website. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Kevin, thanks again for being with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jeremy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 